You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, welcome to Chapel. This is a very special day as we welcome Asburyans young and old. We also greet many who are listening to this morning's service around the world, including even friends in India who are praying for revival in our country and holding us up in prayer this morning. As we look back to 1970, videos and stories have told us that God came near. It was one divine moment. And today we celebrate with stories of lives that were transformed. As we gather and as our student body learns more about the history of Asbury, we know that we gather not to worship revival. We worship the one who has given himself to us. We worship the one who is present with us this morning. We worship the one who invites us to himself. My name is Greg Hasloff, and I am the campus chaplain and have the joy of getting to be with our students day in and day out. Today we have three more events as we continue to celebrate this 50th anniversary when God comes, stories of lives transformed. So at the conclusion of chapel today from noon to 2 p.m., you are invited to hear testimonies in the gray room of the cafeteria. You can go through the cafeteria line, uh, pick up your tray, and join and gather there in the gray room from noon to 2 p.m. There is a revival display set up in the front of Kinlaw Library that you are welcome to visit. At 4 p.m. today, there will be a reading from the novel Sweet, Sweet Spirit with Rebecca Price Janey, who is the author of that story. That will take place in Kinlaw Boardroom at 4 p.m. The revival hymn, sing, and stories will take place right here in Hughes tonight at 7 p.m. If you are a student and uh, wish to attend and want credit for that, you can check in at the front or at the back of Hughes with a chapel checker. Many revivals have marked Asbury's history. Back to the first two decades of our existence, then into the 1930s, a significant move of God in 1950 and in 1958, and moments of revival in 1992 and 2006. The impact of the 1970 revival on our campus reached dozens of other campuses, hundreds of churches, and in the media, meant that many stories were captured from how God was at work. You'll hear these in the documentary, When God Comes, which will take place in the middle of our worship this morning. And then we'll hear two testimonies. Miss Janine Brabon grew up in a missionary family in Colombia around violence and persecution. As an Asbury student, she was a prayer warrior. She was part of prayer meetings that preceded the revival. Janine was called to be a missionary to Colombia, where she served at Bella Vista Prison in Medellin. Her work there contributed to one of the most violent prisons in the world, 
being transformed to an entirely different place. In 2009, she received the World Methodist Council Peace Award. Judge Tim Philpott will follow with his revival story. After graduating from Asbury, Judge Philpott was a courtroom attorney, served in the Kentucky State Senate, selected as president of Christian Businessmen's Connection International, and served as judge of Fayette Circuit Family Court. You will be filled with great joy as we hear from Janine and Tim this morning. Today, as Hughes Auditorium is filled with a congregation gathered to worship, God is here. This is holy ground. The colorful notes on the cross behind me are a visible sign of how the Lord is at work in our student body even now. During our Holiness Holiness Week five days ago, they were pressing their sins into the cross of Jesus, who cleanses us and renews us. As we said yesterday, this place is holy because the Holy One is here. Good morning. Today we gather together to celebrate an extraordinary act of God's Spirit pressing in upon the Asbury community in a powerful and unusual way. Fifty years ago, today, students gathered for a regular chapel, but a chapel that would end 185 hours later. And today you will hear the extraordinary story of the 1970 Asbury Revival, a movement of God's Spirit that forever marked the lives of those who experienced it, spread across the United States and even internationally, and a movement that would forever change Asbury College and now Asbury University. And to our students and to our guests this morning, I want to ask you, what is your revival story? The 1970 revival inspires reflection and appreciation and celebration, remembrance. But I want to remind you that it would be a mistake this morning to relegate these sentiments to some bygone era. Asbury is many things, but we are not a museum. The revival is not simply a spiritual heirloom of faithful men and women who have gone before us. It is a real, living, present, and active thing because we serve a real, living, present, and active God. I want to share a brief story, and I won't share all the details uh, because some of those details are sacred to me. But I'll simply say that when our family moved to Wilmore about seven years ago, it was a very difficult transition. And there was a cost uh, for our family. Uh, There was a significant cost. There was a lot of insecurity. There was a lot I didn't know about. And several times I thought, have I made a mistake? During a quiet summer afternoon in August before classes had begun, I was in the basement of Morrison and I came to do some work 
and realized I didn't bring anything that I needed to do the work on. So I thought, well, I'll go back home. I was passing by the chapel here. I thought, I wonder if that's open. I walked up. Sure enough, the door was open. I chose to pray. I did two things I, I don't usually do when, when I pray. I prayed out loud, and I, I prayed with my hands open. And I wanted to have a posture of giving, of emptying. And I'll simply tell you that in that morning, I, I think I said, Dear God, <laughs> and then I burst into tears. Luckily, no one was in the chapel at that time. But I managed to say, I give the house I'm in, the job I have, I give my family. That was hard. And after a moment, I said, I give myself. My circumstances were very much the same after I got up from that prayer, but I was different. I cannot tell you how many times in the last seven years I've returned to that moment when my fear and my own control threatened to hijack me. I'm reminded that I gave and that God met me. And in that moment, I found a strength, I found a power, and I found a fullness, a fullness I live into today. And I've said this before, and I will continue saying it many times. This is the great irony of Christianity. In that emptying ourselves, we become whole. So Asbury students, what is your revival story? Revival is living active and present. It's a, it's a spiritual oxygen. But let me quickly also say that revival is power. When we think of power, we think of our rulers across the land, past and present. They have wealth, they have prestige, they have might, they have power. But let me be honest with you, when I think about that power, I actually think of a passage of poetry from the poet Percy Shelley, Ozymandias. The great Ozymandias, who authoritatively bellows out, My name is Ozymandias, King of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. But you see, those were not the words of a king. Those were the words written across a pedestal of a broken statue, a shattered visage, half sunken into the ground, eroding in a barren wasteland. Our rulers and their powers, they come and they go. Our earthly human power is impotence to God, and our wisdom is foolishness to Him. But revival and renewal, this is our active confession of who is real and true and the triumphant King in our life. My father-in-law says, when we pray each morning, we confess who is king. 
Revival and renewal is our recognition of God's timeless, enduring reign and sovereignty. It's our vision for what is good and what is right and what is true. It is our desire for that which truly satisfies. It's our freedom not to do as we want, but to do as we ought. And it is our power to live, in the words of St. Paul, upright, godly lives in this present age. It's the power to become less so that someone else will become more. That power lasts forever. His power, his kingship, his rulership is forever in reign. What is your revival story this morning? As we move forward in our time together this morning, I cannot think of a more appropriate and a more capable individual to speak to the issue of revival than my friend Stan Key. Stan is an alumnus of Asbury College. It's where he met his amazing wife, Katie. He's a former missionary and pastor, and he currently serves as the president of the Francis Asbury Society. He's a gifted author. He's a gifted speaker. He knows the Lord, and he can speak compellingly to the fullness of the Christian life. We are blessed to have him with us today. Thank you. If you're interested in revival and Google or research or just explore what it means, you're, act, you're potentially going to become more confused than ever before. Because what is said about revival, at least in the historical examples claiming to be revival, you go from the sublime to the ridiculous goes from everything from a holy hush in a monastery to barking like dogs in a tent. It goes from everything from tongues of fire in Jerusalem to holy laughter in Toronto. What is revival? For many people, it's fanaticism, emotionalism, or when I was a junior in high school in Albany, Georgia, and heard about something going on in my mother and dad's alma mater. It was just weird. <laughs> what is revival? I think I've got one assignment this morning for this slot, and that is to read what I believe is the classic statement of revival in all of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 37, the story of the dry bones. And I'm not going to ask you to turn in your Bible. I'm going to ask you to receive the word through the ear gate, like most people actually in human history have done, and use your sanctified imagination to just let this picture define for you what happens when the prayer that Isaiah prayed, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, what it looks like when God comes. Hear the word of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many bones on the surface of the valley, 
And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know the answer to that question. Then he said to me, prophesy or preach. Preach to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and I will cover you with skin, and I will put breath in you, and you will live, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied to the wind as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Ooh. The Spirit of God was showing Ezekiel what it looks like when the heavens open and God comes down and revives his people. If you're sitting here this morning wondering... What a God-sent, Spirit-ordained, Christ-honored, honoring, character-transforming, world-changing movement of the Spirit looks like. And whether that's what happened 50 years ago in this room or not, I just want to say I'm so glad you're asking that question. Because that's the question of the hour. I want to humbly suggest there are three essential ingredients of an authentic revival from heaven. The first is a vision of the valley. Somebody's got to see the truth about the condition of the people of God and the church. That's what's going on in the first three verses when the Spirit of God took his prophet and said, Isaiah, e Ezekiel, what do you see? Lord, I see a cemetery. I see a boneyard. Everything here is spiritually dead. 
just the way my mind works, but I was reminded this week, anticipating this moment, of the opening paragraph of Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol. It's my favorite paragraph in A Christmas Carol. Anybody know how it starts? You'll remember it when I quote it. It starts this way, A Christmas Carol. Marley was dead. No doubt about it. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, and the undertaker. Marley was dead, dead as a doornail. (laughs) And that's how a delightful story begins about life and hope and joy. We call it a Christmas carol. Genuine revival always begins. Authentic revival always begins with conviction of sin and an awareness of our spiritual death. It's what Jesus said to the church at Sardis, the risen Christ. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you're dead. Dead as a doornail. That's when revival comes. I came on the campus of Asbury three years after the revival, trying to make sense out of this strange place. (laughs) One of the revival speakers for fall revival that we had during my time here was a man named Leonard Ravenhill. Anybody remember Leonard Ravenhill? Oh, my goodness. Some of us at the time called him Leonard Raving Mad. Because he stood in this pulpit and basically scared the hell out of me. And I did not swear when I said that. As I realized, that's what he's intending to do. Scare the hell out of us. And he told me I was a sinner, a hypocrite, and if I didn't change, I'd go to hell. Prophets are never very popular people. But oh, the freedom that comes. I don't know how to say this strongly enough. The freedom that comes when you get to a place where you realize I'm just a no good, low down, dirty, rotten bum and everybody else is too and they know I am. Isn't it a glorious reality to live in? (laughs) Revival came to this campus 70 years ago. When some students were praying, Janine Brabon's going to tell you some of the story, I think, of that student prayer emphasis where she walked around this campus with a ring of cards of the names of students she was praying for who needed God in their life. Rumor has it, she was rather obnoxious on campus. (laughs) Because people don't like to be reminded of the spiritual death But that's when God comes because where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds even more. It's when we empty ourselves that we discover the fullness of God. And that happened in this room 50 years ago. The glorious reality. But Ezekiel had a problem. Because if the first essential of revival is a vision of the valley... What do you do when the people you're called to preach to are dead? (laughs) Dead people can't hear. 
In fact, dead people don't even know they're dead. That's what it means to be dead. That's pretty profound if you'll stop and think about it. And God told the prophet, preach anyway. Preach not your opinions. Don't preach your theology. Nobody cares about that anyway. Preach the word of God. Preach to these bones and say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I was reminded just recently of a wonderful story. It happened on April the 4th, 1742 at Oxford University when a fellow named Charles Wesley was invited to preach to the elite of the elite of England. And he chose for his text Ephesians 4, 5.14 Awake thou that sleepest, good King James, arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. We often think of Charles Wesley as the sweet singer of Methodism. There was nothing sweet about this sermon. When he basically told the cream of the cream of England, you think you're part of the esteemed culture of this kingdom, but you're an abomination to God. And scholars tell us that that sermon, Awake Thou That Sleepest, was printed more times and distributed more widely than any other sermon in the 18th century and may just be considered the epicenter of the 18th century revival. Because revival begins when our eyes are opened because the word is preached so we can see the reality of our sinful condition. It's what happened in John chapter 11 when Jesus stood in the cemetery and looked at a tomb where his friend Lazarus had been dead for four days. And he said, Lazarus. I think everybody must have said, Lord, he's dead. In fact, his sister said, Lord, he stinketh. I love the King James on that one. And he said, Lazarus, wake up. Come forth. And when the word of God comes, life comes. It's what happened at the dawn of creation when all was formless and void and dark. And suddenly the word, let there be light. And out of chaos came order. Out of darkness came light. Out of death came life. I'm intrigued at what I understand about the 1970 revival is that the Word of God came in this room not primarily through preaching, as important as that is. The Word came through testimony. But it was the Word as students and faculty stood at a microphone in obedience to the Word of God. And suddenly dry bones began to come alive. There's a third ingredient to revival. Not only is there a vision of the valley, not only is there a proclamation of the word, those are good and important, but that's not revival. It's not revival until, thirdly, the breath of the Spirit. Prophesy to the wind. 
Ezekiel had an interesting job description. He had to preach to bones and he had to preach to the wind. It's pretty interesting. But he did what he was told. And he said, O wind of God, O breath of the Spirit, because in the Hebrew language the same word is used to translate wind, breath, or spirit. Breath, breathe across this valley. And the wind of God, the Spirit, the sweet, sweet Spirit, began to blow through that valley. And it's so dramatic. I'm not a dramatist enough to read it the way it needs to be read. But Ezekiel said, the first thing that happened was I heard a sound. There was a rattling. Dry bone to dry bone. The bones began to come together. The toe bone connected to the ankle bone. The ankle bone connected to the shin bone. And it went right up. That's where the spiritual is sung, rightly so. Because God was moving, the bones began to form skeletons. That's impressive. The skeletons began to be covered with skin, and they turned into corpses. That's impressive. You had a whole valley of what used to be scattered dry bones now filled with corpses. It's the kind of TV show that your generation loves so much. That was an aside. (laughs) But if I had been the prophet and I had preached a sermon that had called scattered bones to form skeletons to form corpses, I would have said, this is such an improvement over the old condition, I think we're going to have the benediction and go home. But the Spirit of God said, we ain't done yet. Preach to the breath. And this is when it happened. The sweet, sweet breath of the Almighty breathed into those cadavers. And they began to come awake. And they stood on their feet, a mighty army. I love that part. And I think they turned to the Lord their God, saluted and said, Sir, reporting for duty. That's a great story. That's a great story. We celebrate something that happened 50 years ago. Not because we're interested in nostalgia or sentimentality. We celebrate the past to remind us that God wants to do it again. I think my favorite statement on revival comes from G. Campbell Morgan, who said years ago, we can't create revival, but we can set our sails for the wind of the Spirit when it begins to blow. We can't create revival, but we can set our sails. Yesterday I was talking to one of my daughters sharing with her my nervousness about this morning. And she reminded me of Prince Caspian, C.S. Lewis, where Lucy is talking to Aslan and saying, you came, but you didn't come the same way you came last time. And Aslan says to Lucy, things never happen the same way twice. I said, that's my word.
They happen. But let God have the freedom. One of the things I saw early on is that obedience is the key to revival. God loves to do the impossible through the most unlikely. How would you respond if you knew that your obedience to God would have a significant difference and impact throughout all eternity? In Genesis 12, we're told of Abraham's call. And Abraham departed and did as the Lord told him. Like Abraham, my father left all in obedience, and he went to Columbia, South America, where I was born. I have a very rich heritage. At a very early age, I asked Jesus to come into my life as my personal Lord and Savior. I was only age five at that time. And I grew up in the persecuted church in Columbia. It was a difficult time. But in the community, missionary community where I lived, I noticed a difference. I said, at age 10, I came to my mother and said, Mother, how come adults never get angry? And she said, she just said one word to me, two words, Janine, it's the Holy Spirit. Well, I knew I needed it. I, knew that I needed something more in my life. When I was 11, we were in the States on furlough, and I never fit in to this culture like I, I never felt like I belonged. But at the end of a message by Bill Gillum, I felt God calling me to serve him. I remember I went home that night and cried myself to sleep. I didn't feel I had what it take. I didn't feel I had it all together. Um, to be a missionary, in, in my context, you had to be willing to lay down your life. I remember students coming with their heads split open with machetes. I remember people that were, were martyred for their faith. And... I thought, how God can you possibly use me? But availability is what God wants. And still the hunger in my heart for more of Jesus. When I was age 12, I got home from, from a meeting in our church and knelt down by my bed, and I just poured out my heart to God. I was honest with him. I said, Lord, I, get, I don't like to read the Bible. I know I should read the Bible. And I know I should witness, but I'm scared to death to witness. I'd walk outside our campus and we get rocks thrown at us because we were the hated Protestants and I said I don't have a lot of courage Lord and I told the Lord just what I felt and I felt God come, come upon me in a new way that morning I woke up grabbed my Bible started to read my Bible with a hunger for it and we went out to play we, we were one room school room so we had to use from primary school up through junior high and we were playing a game, and I got a foul called on me. And instead of reacting like I normally reacted, I said, it's okay. And I was dumbfounded. What happened to me, Jim? You know? And so I went to my professor, who was my teacher. It was Wesley and Pat. And he said, Janine, it's the Holy Spirit. Well, I said, well, Lord, you just, Holy Spirit, you just take me, because that's the only way I want to live. And I found a purity and a passion not of my own. And I wanted to know God intimately. I felt very insignificant. But I'd come to know the one that is significant. God Almighty. I didn't feel worthy or capable. But this was the very condition God wanted. Obedience has brought me to where I am today. I've been working in the prisons. I've said security is not the absence of danger. But one thing I realized as a young, as a young person, a teenager, 
was that security is not, is not having it all together. Security is the presence of Jesus. It's all about relationship. Why did Jesus pray? It was his relationship with the Father. I began to live in revival. What do you mean by that? Well, the song says, Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that fully feels the blood so freely shed for me. John had the question, Mother, what is sin? John Wesley. And Susanna said to him, Whatever weakens your reason, impairs your tenderness of your conscience, obscures the sense of God, or takes off the relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. And I realized that I wanted God to work in a deeper way. He began to, to, to work in my life, and he had called me into prayer. I thought, how can I do something more? The Lord said, I want you to pray every hour. I said, well, how can I pray every hour? And, and the Lord said, you pray before class, just, just include others. So I began this discipline five years before the revival ever began. I began to pray for people in an earnest way. It was a difficult time when I came to Asbury. There were riots there in, in our country and Vietnam. There was turmoil here on campus in, in the administration. And students came up to me as a freshman to sign a petition to get the president out. And the Lord just, I said, I felt checked, and I said, no. The Lord just said to me, Janine, you can criticize or you can pray. Criticize, you talk to man. But to pray, you're talking to me. So God called me to pray, to begin to pray for a move of God that would impact the world, beginning here on our campus. I was just, I was just a freshman. But yet, I never missed chapel. Chapel wasn't always that exciting, but I never missed chapel. <laughs> because I was waiting for God to come. My sophomore year, the Lord challenged me to, that we should pray before chapel, have a time of prayer before chapel. So I, I was very shy, very shy. And I felt very insignificant. But I went to the student um, spiritual life coordinator, and she sent me to the student body president. And I thought, oh, Lord, how many more people do I have to talk to before I get this? <laughs> and she, he sent me to the academic dean. Well, he talked and talked, and he said, what do you want? I said, I, we need a room where we can pray before chat. I feel that in my spirit that God wants to do something on campus, but I want we have a place to pray. He said, well, go find one. Well, that wasn't so easy. We didn't have cha chapel at 10 o'clock. We had it at 9 o'clock on Tuesday, 10 o'clock, and then on Saturday was no problem. It was at 8 o'clock. So I found a place, and, and we began to pray. I wanted a lot of people to pray, but there weren't very many of us. There were a pocket of students praying that had a hunger to see God work in a special way. I can remember my junior year, the Lord said to me, Janine, I want you to pray for every student in the student body. So I went to the registrar's office, not knowing if they would do this, but I asked him, I said, I want to pray for every student by name. Every student is very precious to Jesus, and I want to lift them to Jesus. Would it be possible to have a, a list of the student body? And I got a list, and I put it in a, in a binder, and I carried it everywhere with me. And I prayed over every single student in the student body, praying for Jesus to touch their lives and to come. In my, and we had a class paper um, in October 69, 
we, it was called the Aztec Act. Some, our names was really weird. My class was the Aztecs. And um, in the Aztecs action, I wrote, many a sincere Christian is aware of the need of revival. That is a deep need for the Holy Spirit to take action in a greater way, whether this be in, in our home communities, Asbury, or the world. The need is obvious, but it has to begin somewhere. Could it begin at Asbury, something that would really shake our world for God? In the early church and with individuals, there's a deep hunger for God. Where does it begin? It begins in their own lives because they are hungry after God himself. I realized God was working in my own life. I can tell you there, were, there was within me a, a holy awareness of the deep moving of God's spirit. Hour upon hour, my soul was drawn out in prayer. At times, it seemed like a life and death struggle. At other times, a confrontation with the fury of hell. Not an hour passed, but what I did feel the Holy Spirit interceding. And even in my sleep, I found my soul crying out to God to intercede through me. Personally, I cannot pray, nor have the strength to intercede. The only way it is possible is through the Holy Spirit through me. I underscore this. The Holy Spirit is interceding in a measure more unknown, quite unknown to me. Therefore, God is actively engaging the Holy Spirit to more powerfully move. It is not me, it's God. When or how God will work, I don't know. He's, he's only told me to be steady. He wanted me to pray. And since ancient times, no one has seen, nor I has perceived, seen what God, God who acts on behalf of them who wait for him. It was a difficult time on campus. I had students come to me before the, before the end of the year and said, Janine, you pray. I know you pray. The high school students are getting their drugs from the college students. And if God, we know when the narcs come. And if, and if God doesn't come on campus, if something doesn't happen. And I, I, I went to Dr. Kinlaw. And I, I told him what I, what I had had heard, and I said, Dr. Kinlaw, don't worry. God's going to come. He's come. Well, how did I know this? We, in a fast prayer meeting, we'd been, this was, altar was filled, and I couldn't believe it. It was an all-time low on campus. Spiritually, we were very, very low. And I said to one of the men's students next to me, I wish we could pray through all, pray through all night. That'd be next to impossible. We had curfew at 10 o'clock. So, <laughs> once again, God, moving a shy student, I went up to Dean Span and I said, I want to ask you a very unusual request. That God is working in the men's storm and God's working in the women's storm. But we men and women students would like to get together and to, to intercede all night if possible. If that, would that be possible? Well, he was silent, total silence. And then he said, I'll do it under two conditions. You take full responsibility for any women students to sign out, and we're going to only make one announcement. No publicity. So when the announcement was made, it was made with this not a very large group of people. So that October 3rd, I came into Hughes. Hughes had just been carpeted for the first time. It was a gold carpet. And I went over here back and turned on the skylights, and I remember saying, God, Show me that I don't know anything about prayer. I ask you just to come. How? I don't know. But I want you to come. 
And don't you know, about 12 o'clock, 10 men's students came and knelt here at the altar. And in 20 minutes, at an old-time spiritual law, you can get anybody to prayer meeting. We had 150 people in this auditorium at 12 o'clock at night. And we began to intercede, and the Shekinah glory came. We began to quote scriptures about salvation. We began to begin of the Spirit of God. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. So, Lord, we've, we've sinned against you. We want you to come. And we began to sing, and we literally lifted the rafters. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. I went up on the balcony watching it all, just in total awe. God can't, had come. And there's only one professor present. And he found me up there, dear brother C.V. Hunter. He said, Janine, I'm trying to figure out who's in charge here. <laughs> and I said, Dr. Hunter, I believe it's the Holy Spirit. And he says, don't you think he's met us? Yes. This was 3 in the morning. And we formed it. There were 80 of us students still in Hughes Auditorium at 3 in the morning. We formed a, a chain all the way around the altar and back up here in front of the pulpit. And we thanked God that he was going to come. Well, the next morning, we had chapel at 8 o'clock, and I got to bed at 4, and at 8 o'clock, I was here in chapel. Well, chapel came and went, nothing happened. And I came down here, and a student caught me. and said, Janine, nothing happened. And I said, do you know Acts 1, 7? It's not for you to know the times of the season which the Father has put in my hands. But, you shall receive power. He's coming. In a way, in a, in a desire to, to have God work in a deeper way, I, we adapted the John Wesley great experiment to have the leadership of the student body, different leaders involved in this. And we presented it. We did it in the month of January. We, we presented it as an option for students to get involved in a small group on, on January 31st. And the, the slips of paper began to come in of students wanting to be in a small group. This was on the Monday, February 2nd. February 3rd, I, I went downstairs to pray and then came up. And I, sat, I was back there in the junior section, sat next to my, my chapel partner, says to me, I got a test next hour. I said, I do too. She said, but I don't think we're going to take it. I said, do you feel that way too? Said, yeah, I feel that way. But how's it going to happen? The person that we saw was going to speak, we didn't know how God was going to do this. <laughs> well, God has everything in control. God, when God sets up something, he had the academic dean in charge. So he, he stood up and he said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to speak. Sigh of relief. And we, he said, I'm opening it for testimonies. So over here, Larry Sutherland, uh, senior, the, all, the, the Jim Jamboree clown stood up and he said, I've been a hypocrite, but God's got a hold of my life. He started sharing and then another one began sharing and pretty soon you couldn't hear people so they had to come up here. There's a line and the altar began to fill. My other chapel partner, the bell rang for class. My other chapel partner says, Gene, they can't quit this. I said, well, you get up there and tell tell." tell the dean. So he gets out and he approaches the same time Brother Hunter who had been in our prayer meeting that night and um, Reynolds, who, the academic dean was the only one that could call off class and he called off class. 
And you know, I just knew God sent out a snow. There was no, all the student teachers, there was no class, no school because of snow. I went flying out of the back at 12 o'clock, went down to over the cross the street to the seminary student, a couple that I knew. And I said, it's here, it's here, what's here? I said, revival, it's here. I'd already witnessed it that night, and I said, it's here. And so I pulled, I said, don't you want anything to eat? No, I don't want anything to eat. Come. They walked into the foyer. No sooner they walked into the foyer, tears started streaming down. They sensed the presence of God. It was so obvious. Now that week, I don't remember. I maybe slept 20 hours that entire week. I don't remember eating. But when you're in the presence of God, there's nothing more glorious than seeing God come in his power and his fullness. On February 6th, I wrote about 2 a.m. A friend and I felt led to pray out our feelings. I asked him to break me in myself and make me more like Jesus. Words didn't come easily. God was moving so deeply in our midst. I knew this was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on our campus was the answer to the deep longing of my heart for world revival. I knew that this was just the beginning and that I too needed God if I were to continue God to continue to move. I too needed a fresh touch. I realized that it does not matter where, you, where I am in my spiritual walk with him, there's always room for growth, for a closer, more intimate walk with God. Revival touches the masses, but it spreads individually. Only as we as individuals are willing to recognize our own shortcomings and our own obedience to God. God, I, never, you ne- I was never the same after that. I went to the mission field, and then I went to Columbia right after, out of college, and was in Spain when... Jack Taylor came, and he spoke. And I was always trying in my mind, Lord, um, how, how are you going to work? Because you have revival meetings and more. How, how is all this fit? I mean, I've seen revival, but what, what do you want to do? And so when he spoke, it really touched my heart. And I wrote this. The coals of, in my soul burst into flame. Once having lived through the days of the Holy Spirit's obvious, deep working, I've never been satisfied with the norm Christianity has lived. Regardless of where I am, there's a constant cry in my soul for the reviving of God's people and the awakening of the lost for for a hunger for God. I know it is possible to believe God will allow the Holy Spirit to descend in transforming power in in a people. I've seen it. On that day before the evening service, these revival meetings in Spain, I dashed home for a short siesta. I woke up from a dream I thought most strange. I tried to shove it off, but it was vividly etched in my mind. In my dream, I was ushered into a room where, where a newborn baby lay. The baby was placed in my arms. An incredible thrill pierced my heart in hearing his cry. I was puzzled. I wondered, why should I behold this new life first? The baby wasn't mine. Why should I be so privileged? While trying to grasp this, the Lord began to speak to me. Lord, what are you trying to say? The baby. That's the revival I've seen. As I hurried to catch the subway to the service, the Spirit quietly spoke to me. Janine, all that you've seen and witnessed up to now is the birth of a great revival. You know the, you know the wonder of a newborn baby and his penetrating cry. It's a wonder to everybody, the center of attention. And then the baby grows and develops Others tend not to notice as much. But the ones caring for the little one are aware of the signs of growth. 
Prayer has this role in revival. The revival of the 1970s did not die. Today, my spirit continues breathing life. You have beheld revival and infancy. Believe now for full maturity. Said I not unto, unto thee that if you would believe, you will see the glory of God? Humanly, it's impossible to capture in a few words the glimpse I saw as God pulled back the curtains of eternity. An awesome awareness flooded my soul. And just one thing I want to say in conclusion. This is the 70 revival. And Hebrew thought, this is the year of Jubilee. What does the year of Jubilee mean? Jubilee is the restoration of what's been lost. So this is a year, this, 2020 is a year God's coming. He's here. Janine and I have not spoken. She had no idea that I was going to open with Leviticus 25, which is about the year of Jubilee. Um, Leviticus 25.10 says, and I hope you will listen, set this year apart as holy, 2020, a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all who live there. Leviticus 25, 54, and 55. I'm going to substitute Asbury for Israel, if that's okay. If any Asburyans have not been bought back by the time the year of Jubilee arrives, they and their children must be set free at that time. For the people of Asbury belong to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. My story is really not the story of a, a guy whose resume and biography gets set out. When I go to speak, they send out a, a bio and a resume that he was this and this and that. My story is the story of a, a little boy named Timmy. It's actually found in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. Even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. My parents met in 1940 uh, at Renfro Valley here in Kentucky. My dad was a hillbilly drunk. My mother was a person who would end up making all A's at Asbury someday. They didn't really fit each other, but they met and got married in 1940. My dad got drunk and signed up for the Marines. And uh, I have the letters that he wrote from Paris Island in 1942 to my mother. They're, they're like reading letters from Barney Fife. Uh, my parents were separated for three and a half years. When my dad returned in 1945, his alcoholism got worse. And by 1947, he was in a sanitarium and my mother who had been saved in a little Methodist church in Newtown, Ohio, under an Asbury student pastor named Don Porteous, began to pray for her husband. And she and her pastor concocted a scheme to get my dad to enroll at Asbury College as a freshman in 1947. 
And so my parents came here in 1947. My father, they, um, Dr. Z.T. Johnson was the president, and Dad talked him into letting him enroll even though he had not graduated high school. Um, my mother was a skilled secretary, and she got a job here working for Dr. Harned, whoever he was, in the business office. And my parents enrolled as freshmen in 1947, the fall revival of 1947. My dad, who was still slipping off to Lexington to drink every weekend, got hooked into a prayer meeting here someplace with some of his friends, including Tom Ditto. I know the Dittos are here someplace. And it took a miracle, but my dad was saved that night. He started preaching the next Sunday morning. And by February 1950, he was part of a revival on this campus, in this place. I never heard a lot of details about the February 1950 revival, but I suspect, and I like to imagine in my mind, that one of the things my parents would have prayed for at that time was children. They had been told they would never have any children. And so they graduated Asbury in June of 1950. In March of 1951, a little boy named Timmy was born. And I now know that having been born nine months after graduation, my parents celebrated graduation by making me. <laughs> and then they made little Danny, my brother, who's here this morning. And even though I was very ordinary, the, 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 the word that I kept hearing all during my childhood was that little Timmy's a miracle, Danny's a miracle, God must have a plan for them. The plan was not going so great, though. When by the time I was 14, I was such a rotten little kid, they shipped me off to a boarding school in Florida, which is where I met Janine Brabon because she was at the same school. She may act like a saint, but believe me, she was at the same school. Uh, This is a fact, and I only saw it recently, and I, I, I can verify this. I've seen the transcript. My mother made all A's at Asbury College, all A's, summa cum laude. She only made one B. Her B was in child evangelism. <laughs> True story. And so I think, and I think it's true for everybody in this room, even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. And then, the verse says, it pleased him to reveal his son to me. That's the 1970 for me. Then, <laughs> it pleased him to reveal his son to me. On January 11, 1970, was Super Bowl Sunday. The Kansas City Chiefs won, by the way. The Super Bowl 50 years ago. They won yesterday. I was driving way too fast. I had a little gold Mustang convertible. I had a young lady in the car with me, and we were trying to get to Lexington to watch the Super Bowl. I hit a slick spot. It was going way too fast, which is what I did in those days. I went down a 30-foot embankment with no seat belts, right at Elkhorn, where I pass every day. So do you. 
And for about five seconds, I was completely sure that I was dead. My precious possession, my Mustang, was totaled. Somehow, I survived the accident, and so did the young lady that was in the car with me. And 23 days later was February 3, 1970. God got my attention. He will get your attention. He'll take away your Mustang. He'll let you see what death looks like. He'll do something to get your attention. And so on February 3, I was skipping chapel. I, I know there's some empty seats this morning. Somebody else is skipping chapel. <laughs> I was actually studying up for an Old Testament exam with Dr. Hankey. And I was one of those students who was pretty sure the rapture had come when I went to the classroom and nobody was there. And I wandered over here and pretended like I was happy about everything. But by February 6, on Friday morning, 1 o'clock in the morning, I stood at the back of Hughes Auditorium and I grabbed a young lady who was next to me. Her name is forgotten, actually. And you heard on the video what I, <laughs> what I said. I came running down this altar and I sat right there. And I forget who was around me except for Steve Siemens. And Steve prayed with me. Lots of people prayed with me. I met a gentleman last night in a wheelchair back here, Gary, who told me he was one of the people praying for me. I hadn't seen him in 50 years. And as, I, as he came in here today, he says, I'm praying for you. You still praying for me, man, 50 years later? <laughs> and so it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that... I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. He, he didn't reveal his son to me for me only. He did it so that, so that, I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. I started with my brother Danny. I went to a meeting in Lexington for young people, and a revival broke out at Tates Creek High School. Uh, my go old golf buddies and my brother got saved. I was there with Eddie Robb, who was my roommate at the time. The next weekend, I'm on an airplane going to Minneapolis, Minnesota, speaking at some Bible college and Phil Heinerman's church, and revival broke out there. I put a sign on my golf bag. I was a golfer back in those days. Christ died for my sins. I started wearing this little fish hook that I've got on today so that people would ask me, what's the, what's the fish hook? And I would just say, Jesus said... Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I've been doing that for 50 years. By the way, I brought a bunch of fish hooks. They're in a sack over here. If you want one, grab one on your way out so that you too can have a simple way to say, Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so God uh, enabled me to proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. For me, the Gentiles have been mostly lawyers. <laughs> And, and judges, and politicians, and golfers. I've, I've preached in 67 countries, but most of my best work has just been eyeball to eyeball with lawyers and other assorted heathens sharing the good news of Jesus. I will close with this. Uh, I, I suppose my favorite verse, I usually sign it after my name, I got this from a sermon from Dr. Robert Coleman many years ago, one of my heroes, or hero of the revival, really. Revelation 12 and 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, 
and they were not afraid to die. In Revelation, three times, I, 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 I feel called that we should have some sort of invitation today, but be careful about this invitation. It's not an invitation to success and glory. <laughs> it's an invitation to, to suffer. It's an invitation for trouble to come into your life. Because John, in Revelation 1-9, was exiled to, the, to Patmos for two things. For preaching the Word of God, and for, he said, for my testimony about Jesus. Revelation 6-9, the souls that were martyred for the Word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. Revelation 24, souls of those beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and the proclaiming the Word of God. You will only get in trouble for the rest of your life for two things. The Word of God, if you believe it, and your testimony for Jesus. Fifty years later, I can give you testimony of Jesus, that he has been faithful for 50 years for me. I can give you testimony that the Word of God has meant everything to me. The most life-changing thing in my life actually didn't even really occur out right here, although it was, it was profound and traumatic and life-changing. The most life-changing thing for me happened about 10 years later when I started getting out of bed every morning and started spending as many hours as I could early in the morning I began to live what I call a dew-drenched life. When the dew is still on the grass, an hour or two or more if possible in the Word of God, eating the Word of God. And the more I received the Word of God, the more my testimony of Jesus became, became real for me and the people around me. My prayer for you today, I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you to eat the Word of God. I'm inviting you and asking you, do you have a testimony? Do you have a testimony of Jesus? Not a testimony of Asbury or your, your goodness, but a testimony of what Jesus himself has done in your life. What a day this would be. The, jubile the year of Jubilee. Lord Jesus, would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus... Would you set this year apart as holy? Would you set apart 2020 as holy? Would you make this a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all who live here? Lord Jesus, if there would be anybody here today who has not experienced the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ, I pray that they could receive that same freedom that I received 50 years ago. And if any Asbarians have not been brought back over these last 50 years, I pray that they and their children would be set free, set free at this time. For the people of Asbury, Lord, belong to you. They are your servants. You've brought them out of the land of Egypt, and you are their Lord and their God. Lord Jesus, if there's any person here, any student, any visitor here today, who has not received that freedom that is found in Jesus Christ, I pray that, pray that you would give them courage as we close to come to this altar and to find that freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you, Judge Philpott. Thank you, Janine. Thank you, Reverend Stan Key. The Holy Spirit is stirring in our hearts this morning. In about 60 seconds, I'll give a dismissal to some of you that need to go. The thousands have met with the Lord here in this room. Thousands have knelt at this altar and confessed sin and have had burdens lifted, have received calling, have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Much has been surrendered here and many people have stood from this altar with the assurance that they belong to Jesus. And so as we respond to him this morning, we also come this morning to intercede, to petition God to bring renewal in our hearts, to bring revival in our churches, to bring awakening to our land.